It is great to be back with you again. Um, met some old friends in the parking, parking lot as I drove in, and I, I realized I've been coming here on and off for almost 20 years. So um, that's, a, that's a good thing, isn't it? Would you turn in the Word of God to, to Acts, uh, Book of Acts, verse 9, or chapter 9, and we're going to read just the first eight. In fact, I'm going to stretch you a little bit. We'll go on and we'll read through up to verse 9. I'll, I'll push it a little bit. Uh, as we come to look at this portion of the Word of God, uh, I'm visiting, I'm coming in. Uh, why am I picking on this particularly? And let me give you two quick reasons as you're turning there, uh, and then I'll pray and then we'll start. Well, one is, um, this is actually comes off a Mintz course, so this gives you a flavor of what we teach in Mintz. Um, and part of this is a, a Book of Acts sermon series that we run. Uh, the other, of course, is that this is the heart of Paul's theology. He's, he's meeting the risen Christ. And although, that, although Paul himself isn't a man who deals in experience, he deals in principle. He's one of the most principal writers of the New Testament. We see that his conversion, all the elements of his theology are going to come out of his conversion. They come out richly and powerfully from his conversion. Let's pray quickly. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the risen Christ. We thank you for his victory. We thank you for his conquest. We thank you that he conquered this man, Lord, and brought him to become a servant from one who hated you to one who becomes a loving and willing servant who follows the resurrected Christ and did follow him all the days of his life. And he has been such a great blessing to us, Lord, that you would have raised him up. So, oh Lord, as we come to your word, open it, teach us, instruct us, and may the Holy Spirit indeed open our hearts and minds. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Right, but, uh, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to us. Now, um, there are two things that I want to explore with you. The third thing is I can't explore to you, and I wish I could, so I'm going to explore it via the back way, which is the role that Ananias plays in the conversion of Saul. And it's really worth thinking about how God himself, how the risen Christ, could have signed, sealed, and delivered the whole process of the apostles' conversion without the church being directly involved. And yet, he finishes, and I'm, I'm using the term loosely, he finishes the conversion of Paul by including this man Ananias as the church has a function and a role in the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God graciously goes out and graciously he includes 
his church. So just think about that as you continue to think about this particular section of the word. But we're going to focus on Paul before his conversion as we look here. That's the first part. And then we're going to focus on Paul particularly and his conversion. And in order to understand what is happening here in this particular part of Scripture, we do need to look a little bit at the background, and particularly at the persecution of Stephen and the death of Stephen, which had occurred a few chapters earlier. Stephen, as you know, was a man, as we're told, he was filled with grace. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was doing great works. Uh, he did many uh, signs and wonders, we're told, amongst the people. And he was preaching at the synagogue of the freemen. He was a Hellenistic, um, Hellenistic Jew. Uh, he, they would have worshipped in Greek, and they would have read the Septuagint. But he was worshipping at the synagogue of the freedom, and with the Croatians and the Alexandrians. And then it says, and there arose from those in Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So he was going to the synagogues. He was speaking about Christ in the synagogues. Disputation arose, and it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Here is a living witness to the Christ and the risen Christ. And we have this man, Stephen, this extremely gifted preacher, clear thinking, filled with wisdom, filled with power. And he's in the synagogues because we hadn't had that split between the church and the synagogue as we have today. And he's in the synagogue and he's speaking. And what's the, what's the, what's the absolute center of Stephen's attack? Well, Stephen argues, if you go back and have a look, the period of Moses and the law is coming to an end. Christ has fulfilled the greatness of the promises made to Moses. That greater prophet has finally come. The end of the period of the temple being the center of worship has come. Christ is the temple. He is the resurrected Lord. Now, if you put those two things together, for the Jew, you get something frightening. We are not the center of God's world as we once were. Remember, you came to Israel. You came to the temple. You worshiped God there. That was the only place that you could find it. But now you're telling me that the Lord Jesus Christ is the temple, that he died, that he gave his body, that he rose again, and that the gospel now isn't just restricted to this, our nation? but it can go out to all nations and it can be freely offered? Is that what you're saying? Because if that's what you're saying, we do not like this. We love the exclusivity. We love to have the law because with much law, we can be very righteous. That was the thinking, right? The more law God gives me, the more I can obey it, the more righteous I can be. That's the thinking. Their pride is here. We have the temple. We have God. God loves us. He doesn't love anybody else. And we can do his will. That was their boast. And when, when Stephen comes and he puts his finger on those things and says, no, 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 the risen Christ is the center of our hope. It has always been the center of our hope. And by the way, you Jews who are proud, you were always a stiff-necked people. You never listened. God sent the prophets and you didn't listen. And then God sent John the Baptist, and you killed him. And then God sent his only son, 
and you crucified him and put him to death. And that's the heart. That's the heart of it. So they take Stephen, don't they? And they put him to death. And they kill him. And we read these just little words in Acts 8 verse 1. Now Saul was there consenting to his death. Saul was there. He'd heard Stephen. He was there. He was either a supervisor or certainly he approved of what was going on. And this is the outbreak of a huge amount of persecution. The floodgates are open. You know how pressure builds. There's something going to happen, and you know something's going to happen. And this pressure is building in Jerusalem. How can these Christians be in the same synagogues as the Jews? How can they confess that Christ is risen when the Jews say, no, he's not the Messiah. We're going to go back to the temple, and we're going to hold on to the law for our salvation. And the pressure is slowly coming and coming and building and building. And finally, Stephen is killed. And it's like you, you cut, open a cut. You know what I mean? This cut and the pressure's building there and you need to launch it. And all of a sudden it all comes out and this wave of persecution breaks out. And Saul is there. And Saul is there. And he's at the forefront of it. And I want you to look around just to give you a visual description of the wickedness of Saul. Because it talks about the great persecution, how, how, how Saul made havoc and went into every church. And I just want you to imagine for a moment, and I want you to look at your wife and think, you could have been a first century Christian and he could have taken her and destroyed her. And I want you to look at your husband and think, that man, Saul, would have come in and taken him away and put him at prison and best and possibly put him to death. And he was like a wild animal, an absolute beast, doing everything he could to destroy the people of God. And children didn't have, children didn't have parents anymore. You know, one of the things that, that, that comes up all the way through the New Testament is this desire to look after the widows and the orphans, and they say that to Paul. They say, look after the widows and the orphans, and he says, yeah, that's my desire too. Why? Because he made many of them widows and orphans. And it wasn't enough to just be in Judea. It wasn't enough. I'm going to go to Damascus. I'm going to travel all the way out to Damascus, and I'm going to take a 12-day journey. Now, that's commitment. I'm taking a 12-day journey to do what? Kill more Christians. And God is pleased with me by doing that. That was his mind. That was his mind. And then, as he's traveling, we get this great opening of heaven, and he is called. And God's grace comes to him in might, and God's grace comes to him in power. And as we read his conversion, there are things which are unique to this conversion. There are things which only happened and will only happen to Paul. But it is also very helpful to know that it is also the principles that happen in all conversion, right? So on the one hand, it, the things that happen in all of us in conversion is we get the calling of Christ. Christ calls to us from heaven. He draws us to himself. But uniquely, he sees the risen Christ. And I have not seen the risen Christ. And nobody in this room has seen the risen Christ. And why? Because why does he see it? Because he's going to be called to be an apostle, right? An apostle has to see the risen Christ. So as we read through this section, 
think about the things that are specific to Paul or Saul. I'm going to use both, and I'm going to say both. I'm going to get a mistake, right? You're going to hear it. I'm going to say Saul instead of Paul, and Paul instead of Saul, right? In Acts 13, there's a name change because he's now a missionary going into the heart of the, the Gentile territory, and he switches from his Jewish name, Saul, to his Roman name, Paulus, right? And that's a deliberate policy as he goes out on his mission field. It only occurs later, but I'm going to keep making a mistake between Saul and Paul. You'll get there. What's the first thing? Firstly, this is not a dream nor a vision. There are dreams and there are visions where God comes to people in Scripture. But Paul will say later, I have seen Jesus Christ. I have seen Jesus Christ. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? 1 Corinthians 9. And then again in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8. Right? Last of all to me, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He sees the risen Christ. That's his summary. No matter what we read here, this is his summary later on of what he experienced. To see the risen Christ. The second thing we see about this is that it's a sovereign, it's a sovereign revelation. Christ comes to him. It is Christ who chooses where and when he will manifest himself, right? Paul speaks of being apprehended by Christ in Philippians. And I think the whole story, doesn't it, as we set out the story of a man breathing threats, murder, hatred, viciousness, he's not looking. I don't know what seeker-sensitive church you would have to have in order to to meet his needs, right? It's not going to happen. It is the sovereign work and the sovereign power of Christ that comes down. He knows, he sees him, he says, I separated, God who separated me, who called me by his grace. It is the work of Christ. Now that should encourage us, brethren. There's so many things that should make us thankful. Why are you here? It is is the same work of Christ that called you. Right? Some of you may have been looking because the Spirit was working gently and kindly within you. Right? And He does. He sometimes draws us with great gentleness and kindness. And, and others, sometimes they've never known a day when, when they haven't had some sort of religious thought. But for others, there was nothing and then there was a moment. There was nothing. And I, I can remember my very first religious experience. I'd come back from a Reformed Baptist church. I was converted in a Reformed Baptist church. I looked at myself in the rearview mirror because I was driving and I was having one of those reflective moments. And I thought, I want what that man showed me. It's the first time I grew up in a Presbyterian church. I'd grown up knowing all of these things. God came and Christ came to me. So it should make us thankful. But it should also encourage us that God is in control. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in this church, in this time, and in this place. And and times are, in some ways, getting more difficult, aren't they? They they feel like they're getting more and more difficult. And know that you have brothers who are going through far, far worse. You have brothers and sisters in China. You have brothers and sisters in other places going through far worse experiences. Do not be discouraged. 
God is in control. The hardness of Saul's heart doesn't stop Christ's power, does it? Right? The, the difficulty that the church faced does not mean that it will be destroyed. The obstacles, and there were so many in that early church, they, they couldn't believe the man was converted, right? That's the thing. Every time he tries to go and speak to somebody, they're like, yeah, yeah, thanks. We've got somewhere else to be. They couldn't believe the power, the grace of God in bringing salvation and the wonder. But God is in control, and the greatness of his grace is on offer even today. You know, why does, why does Saul say those things about himself? Why did the living Christ allow this man to go as far as he did in persecuting the church of Christ? He, he could have stopped this earlier, right? The story could have been written in a very, very different way. And, and there are so many reasons for this, to test the church, right? That's part of it. God tests us. God tests our faith. He tests the faith of the church. But it's to show the greatness of his grace. The wonder of his grace that takes a slave owner and makes him a champion of freedom. That takes a man like Paul or Saul and says, this is a trophy of grace. But I received mercy, he says, for this reason. That in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's, that's the scriptures, that's Saul's and Paul's own words. He says, God allowed things to reach the head that they did so you can see how great the grace of Christ is, how great his power is, how great his long-suffering to display his perfect Patience. Sometimes you wonder whether God will have patience with you, and maybe sometimes you think maybe God won't have patience with people that you know. Sometimes it's very difficult to have patience with people that you know. Right? Yet Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. I don't think it was easy for Christ who was in heaven, right? Why are you persecuting me? Right? Those blows that hit a father, those blows that hit a mother, those blows that cause children not to have anybody to provide for them, no social security, in a sense, they fall on Christ as well, don't they? Because he says, you're persecuting me, my church, my people, whom I love. And, and there are mysteries here, I know. But don't think that that perfect patience of Christ is just something abstract. It's not. Now, how does Christ come? And it's very interesting that Christ comes to him in a very similar way that he came to Moses in the burning bush, right? He comes in a very similar way that he came to Moses in the burning bush. And suddenly, a great light from heaven flashed around him. Now, you may wonder, well, why a light? Why, what's, the, what's, the, what's the mark? Well, in the Old Testament particularly, God coming in light is a mark of divine revelation. Right? God coming in light is a sign God is here. The light shone in the darkness. 
and the darkness could not overcome it, it says in Genesis. At the burning bush, Moses sees God revealed in this fire in the bush, which is not consumed. At Mount Sinai, God comes down with thunder and lightning, and he comes in the cloud, doesn't he? The pillar in the cloud. And on the tabernacle, he comes down in Shekinah glory. God chooses, and, and, and Saul would have understood this, when the light shines like this, he knows he's in the presence of God. He knows he's in the presence of God. And ultimately, the reason why God uses light is it, it, it points us back to his own nature. God is light. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know why Saul could write that passage? Because he'd seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ on that road at Damascus. Told you. His theology starts to come out of his conversion, and his conversion works back to his theology. There's some wonderful things in here. That's the divine light. Now, the second parallel we see is, he says, Saul, Saul. He speaks to him in Aramaic, um, the Jewish religious language at the time. And he says, Saul, Saul. He, he, he spoke to Moses the same way, didn't he, at the burning bush? Right? This is, this is the little keys. He calls Moses and he says, Moses, Moses. And, and part of this is intensification, right? The way that the Jewish said, Shh, the way the Jews would, or the Hebrew would speak about, about something deep and intense would be to repeat it. Let's say, repeat it, repeat it, right? The day that you eat from that tree, it says, you will, we say, surely die, right? It says, the day that you eat of that tree, you will die, die. That's the way that it makes the point. And that word comes Saul, Saul. But also it's a term of endearment. Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. Saul, Saul. And here those words come because God is speaking and it's always a blessing when God speaks, right? When God is silent, we're in trouble. When the heavens are locked up and God is silent, we are in trouble. But when God speaks, there's patience and grace, right? God is finally speaking to this man, and he loves him, and he calls him. And then what do we get? The response, who are you, Lord? And he doesn't really know. He's, he's obviously got to work all these things out. And he says, what, who are you, Lord? And then he says, I am. And that's your third big Moses reference, right? I am who declared himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am this one. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have risen again. I have triumphed. And then he says, I am. And then wonder of wonders, he says, I am Jesus. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come down has lived, has died, has been crucified. And don't stop there, right? We never stop there. And has risen again. Now, he could have said anything. I am the Alpha and the Omega. 
He could have said anything at that point. I am the first and the last. And he says, I am Jesus. That one. Don't, don't mistake who I am. I am Jesus. So we have that threefold reference, that threefold calling, the reference to the burning bush. What is this man Saul now thinking? He's made a connection. Our God is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He's realized that the very one that he has set his face towards is the God that he said or thought he was serving. I am Jesus. And he meets him, not as he could have met him at Mount Sinai, where the light brought judgment and fire and death, but he meets the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, full of mercy, full of power, don't ever mistake that, but full of grace and truth. And then he goes on, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He had never seen Jesus up to that time, as far as we know. He would have been about three or four years different from Jesus in age, probably three or four years younger, had they continued to live and continued to go on, from what we know. So what does he mean, whom you are persecuted? Well, that's Christ's union with his church, isn't it? That, that closeness of the bond between Christ and his church. And we have a service of baptism coming up. Well, what's that? It's a sign of, of union of Christ with his own. He loves us. He cares for you. Every single one of you sitting here who knows his name, who loves his name. He loves you and he cares for you. And he identifies with you. One of the great things of scripture it's this doctrine of our union with Christ. We, we are united with him in his death. We have died to the old. We are buried with him. And we have risen again. So you live in resurrection power. The Lord knows where we are on a very personal level. He knows where Saul was. And he picks up this particular sin, and I'm going to finish up with one or two small things here. He picks up this particular sin. Repentance is always specific, isn't it? We can talk generally, I have repented. But God will come to us when he does come to us and put his finger on specific things, very specific things, because he wants your repentance to be specific. He wants your turning back to him to be a confession and a turning. Now, when he does put his finger on specific things, by the way, that's not the end of it. He'll, he'll reveal a lot more to you as you go along, right? And he does reveal a lot more to you as he goes along. But he puts his thing, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting. Later on, Paul will say this. He said, I was a violent man. I was a persecutor and a blasphemer. That's how Paul thought of himself in his natural state. And yet, Christ has come to him. 
As we go forward, let's remember and let's take courage. If this is a great example, it shows us the power of our God. Don't let any obstacle to your witness stand in the way. You may have spoken to somebody for a long time. There may be great difficulty. There may be strong will. There may be violence. But Christ can work. Don't deny it. Don't think that he can't. He has the power. He has the authority. And he has risen from the grave. Don't be discouraged, but be encouraged. And the very thing that caused so much hurt and pain to the church in those days that very person has become for us one of the greatest blessings that Christ has given us. He gave us the apostles who wrote so much of the scriptures and is such a great blessing to us. Grace abounds to the chief of sinners. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your loving kindness and your tender mercies. We thank you for your power and your love. We thank you for your church and the union we have, one with another. And Father, we praise you for your amazing grace towards this man and to us. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.